we've come to a very opportune place, I think, uh, for this. And that often happens, by the way. It is an amazing thing that when we go through a book of the Bible, that oftentimes right where we happen to be is right where we, so to speak, need to be. You know, and so we are in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And uh, we are, uh, we just may be in Acts chapter 9 for, you know, I don't know, months, days, weeks, years, I, I don't know. But, but anyway, um, we're coming to the end of a section. And the end of the section is actually in the middle of Acts uh, chapter 9. Uh, and actually the last uh, 10 verses or, or so of Acts chapter 9 is like an introduction to chapter 10. So we'll save that for next time. But but we want to finish up this, uh, you know, the deliverance of Paul uh, and all that we've been reading. We, we talked about uh, the event itself, how he encountered the Lord, how he went to Damascus and, you know, and uh, how uh, he uh, really embraced Yeshua and began preaching. And we talked uh, last time uh, there about, you know, his calling of that he would suffer for the Lord and that he uh, would bring this message to Jews and Gentiles, but you know, most specifically uh, the Gentile community. And then last week we talked a lot about the time frame of things and, and, uh, and his discipleship and how a number of years went by. And, and uh, we uh, left it there that, uh, you know, we learned from that, that God is always preparing us, no matter how old we are, no matter how long we have known the Messiah, that uh, God is always at work, you know, and is always uh, preparing, uh, uh, preparing us. So I think what we're going to do is uh, we're going to start a little bit of overlap, start in verse 26 of Acts 9. And there we read, when he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples and they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road uh, and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Yeshua. And he was with them moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea, Caesarea, as it's called, you know, in Israel today, and send him away to Tarsus. Okay, we'll stop there. So I, uh, we see here he's in Jerusalem, and he has this horrible reputation. This horrible reputation. We talked about that last week, you know, that just uh, how they were afraid of him. But here he had come to know the Lord. He had had this marvelous deliverance. Uh, and Barnabas is the one who takes hold of him. Barnabas is the one who uh, takes him under his wing. And this was uh, no simple thing for Barnabas. We don't know exactly when uh, Barnabas met Paul. We actually, you know, people just uh, uh, conjecture about uh, when it was. But uh, uh, Barnabas, uh, as, uh, as we will see, uh, is a, a man who... Uh, was a uh, he was a wealthy a Jewish uh, believer. He sold. We know uh, from earlier on that he uh, sold uh, property and uh, gave it 
uh, to the uh, to the congregation, uh, and uh, we read uh, later on in the eleventh chapter uh, that uh, Barnabas uh, goes off to Tarsus uh, to find you know to find uh, uh, Paul, and that he is a son of encouragement. Uh, Barnabas is, uh, we're going to read about him from time to time in the book of Acts, and we'll actually contrast his personality a little bit to Paul and how God uses all different kinds of, uh, of people. But, but Paul needed Ananias, and he needed Barnabas, and he needed uh, Judas. Remember, not Judas Iscariot, but the Judas whose house that he goes to uh, there in uh, uh, Damascus. And he needed the other apostles. Uh, even though he makes a point of saying that he interacted alone with the Lord and received the good news from the Lord, uh, yet he was in agreement with the apostles. But yet they all needed uh, they all needed each other, and we see just how zealous he was. Uh, speaking boldly, it says it over and over again. Boldly, he was moving about freely in Jerusalem, and it's interesting. It says in twenty nine he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. That should bring back Stephen to us, and probably this from the same place, the synagogue of the freedmen. You know uh, that uh, they were—they must have been really hostile. I mean, they had to really be some hostile people because they stoned Stephen and they sought to kill uh, Paul, uh, and uh, and so uh, they take him to Caesarea, where there was a port, and uh, send him to Tarsus to his hometown, which is in Turkey. Uh, and that's where he stays. And, and you know, he wasn't, uh, uh, it, it wasn't like um, uh, he, was, he didn't do anything uh, for all those years. You know, many people believe that if you turn for a second or just listen, I guess, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when he's talking about uh, his uh, difficulties, when he says, um, in verse 20, 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. This is 2 Corinthians eleven twenty two. now 23. Are they servants of Messiah? I speak as if insane. I so more. I more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten, times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. And by the way, the only people who get 39 lashes are Jews, not people who are considered Gentiles. So he was never considered a non-Jew. It's interesting. He got a punishment that only Jews would receive, like for being like, you know, apostate. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger. I think there was a lot of danger involved uh, here, you know, okay? Uh, I have been in labor, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food. You know, some people might say, what, you didn't have the blessing of God? What, you must have been, uh, you must have been doing something wrong. Right? Because I think in our culture, whether we articulate it or not, if there's hardship, if there's persecution, if there's difficulty in life, we view it as, oh, I must have said a bad word. 
you know, or, uh, or, or God is angry with me. Maybe not. Maybe all of it is just living in this world as an outspoken Messiah follower and being known for that. Uh, we know that uh, Paul was called to a fellowship in the sufferings of Yeshua, as are we as well. Uh, and very, very important. All of these things happen because of his being outspoken for Yeshua. And a good question for us is, I wonder if, if we're outspoken for Yeshua. You know, I wonder if, uh, if that is really um, something that's uh, on the front burner uh, for us. But anyway, he goes on. At the very end of the passage, he says, uh, he says, if I have to boast, I will boast in what pertains to my weaknesses. The God and Father of, of the Lord, Yeshua, he who is blessed forever knows that I'm not lying. And then he says, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratas, the king was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. That is what happened that we read about in Acts 9. So he lumps that together with all the hardships. And many people believe that it was during that 14 period, that 14 year period that a lot of these hardships took place. It was either then or you know, during his travels with Barnabas and then subsequently with Silas on his uh, emissary journeys. You know, he, uh, he definitely uh, was called uh, to, uh, to uh, suffer. Uh, and, uh, and, and certainly, uh, it wasn't only the Hellenistic Jews. We know that from earlier on with, uh, with Peter, you know, and, uh, and John, how they were constantly being attacked and thrown in jail and coming out of jail. It was not easy uh, for these early uh, Messiah followers, okay? And so off Paul goes, uh, and we'll see him again uh, in earnest, we could say at the end of, of uh, chapter uh, 11. And this is going to bring us, in a sense, to the end of a section. And it's really the end of the section about the good news going to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and, uh, in, and also the Galilee in, included in that. And now what's after, the, after this is going to be really a focus on bringing the gospel to the nations, okay? But this, this section ends with a very interesting verse, I think, for us today. I had every intention of actually going all the way to the end of the chapter. <laughs> but uh, verse 31, I thought, was important enough for us to spend uh, a little bit of time on. Uh, uh, today. And so, the, you know, Luke gives us sort of like a, uh, uh, the, uh, the epilogue, you know, to all of this. Uh, and it is in verse 31, verse 31 of Acts 9. And so the congregation, the ecclesia, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Ruach HaKodesh, of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now, this sound, there's a few other verses that are similar to this. Uh, you know, earlier in Acts, in chapter 6, and also in chapter 2, and 
Uh, and, and so it is rather uh, it is rather interesting that Luke gives us he tells us like anecdotal stories of things that happened, mostly involving uh, you know the gospel going forth and the persecution of those who are sharing the good news, and then how the congregation is growing strong. And I thought this was rather interesting. First of all, uh, when you read it, it, to me, it's kind of a surprise because we're reading a lot of negativity. We're reading a lot of, uh, you know, about the, uh, uh, a lot of pushback uh, in regard to the good news going out. There's, there's a lot of persecution and pushback. So how could it be that they continue to grow? It's like opposite day, you know? Uh, it, it's like there was so much turmoil. There was a lot of turmoil going on in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. Turmoil among the believers, you know, in, in, in their uh, being persecuted. And then lots of turmoil in the Jewish world. Lots of uh, factions, uh, revolts, resistance, rebellions. There was a lot going on. It was not a tranquil time at all. And so how is it that in the middle of all of it, they're experiencing peace? They're being built up. How come they're not wringing their hands? How come they're not uh, you know, on the verge of uh, disintegrating? It was not a tranquil time. It was not an easy time for them whatsoever, you know? Uh, and, and so I think that's the first thing. Just reading it and saying, wait a minute, we're seeing Paul is being persecuted. The believers are being persecuted. Uh, and uh, you, you, we read about martyrdom and, and they're experiencing peace and, uh, and they're growing, you know? So that's the first thing, just in and of itself. How could that be? So hopefully we'll we'll uh, give a little bit of an answer uh, to that question here. Then another thing that's interesting, just by way of, of observation, is that it says the ecclesia throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. This is an interesting way to write that. He views the ecclesia, the congregation, as one congregation not the congregations that are located in these various places. He sees them uh, all united. He sees them all as one uh, uh, a group. And what they were, uh, they were even in Jerusalem and in Judea and Galilee. And by the way, this is the only place in Acts where you read about the con a congregation in Galilee. It's uh, ironic because this was uh, Yeshua's base of operations, but you just don't read about it. You just don't read about uh, uh, the Galilee uh, uh, too much. But basically, when he's talking here about uh, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the Jewish believers. And uh, what they were are, were small groupings all over the place. They were small groupings all over the place, but they were connected and they were united together they were united in vision uh and you know so they were they were united in what they understood and they were united in calling but most importantly they were they were organically spiritually uh you uh united you know they uh the, the same ruach 
uh, that was indwelling people in Judea was indwelling the believers in Samaria. And, and that's why we have to see supernatural evidence so that they would know that it's the same, you know? And, uh, and so I would say that that's maybe a, a kind of a lesson that we're learning, you know, that the congregation uh, can be located in many different places. Uh, and, uh, uh, and I mean, I thank the Lord for the technology that we have with one another, but that we should not really be lacking when it comes to uh, a, a fellowship, uh, you know, when, when it comes to uh, knowing the Lord or even maybe a meeting up with a friend or a small grouping of people. That is good. You know, we are one uh, in Messiah. Uh, and so whether we're talking about the congregation in Reynoldsburg, Upper Arlington, uh, Worthington, uh, Gahanna, Columbus, uh, New Albany, where, where, wherever may we, we, we may be, we are certainly uh, one in Messiah. And so what does it say here? It says that they enjoyed peace. It's kind of like, you know, the picture I get in my head is kind of like being in the eye of the storm. You know, it's swirling all around them. Uh, everything is swirling all around them. Time of great turmoil in the Jewish world. Uh, you had tremendous Roman oppression. And in these days, we're getting closer and closer and closer to the end. You know, so it wasn't getting any better uh, for uh, the uh, Jewish world. Yet, uh, in the middle of it all, they enjoyed peace. They did peace. Literally, they did peace. <laughs> or they had peace, you know, and, uh, and of course, um, you know, uh, uh, when we talk about this, uh, uh, they enjoyed peace. I don't know where I heard this. I don't know where I heard this, or maybe I do, you know, uh, a wholeheartedness and wholeness and completeness and soundness and sufficiency and satisfaction and harmony and holistic well-being. You know, uh, Henry taught a mini course on it and just uh, did the entire semantic range and beyond the range. You know what I'm saying? That he expanded the range <laughs> of, uh, of, of wholeness. And this is what they experienced. How could they experience harmony, peace, satisfaction when the world is really falling apart around them? So one of the things we see is that their attitude toward their outlook and just their well-being was not a ref not just was not based on their circumstances but did not reflect their circumstances. They really saw themselves differently. They saw themselves in the beginning of an alternative way of life. Uh, we might call it, uh, they saw themselves in the beginning of an alternative existence. The inbreaking of uh, what God was uh, doing. What God was doing uh, was not simply coming to uh, uh, reform uh, what was existing. He came to transform. He broke into this world and, and he 
uh, really, uh, you know, in filling the, uh, his followers with the Ruach, creating, you might say, an alternative community, an alternative uh, kind of community. And it's interesting that uh, I have a book, uh, and it is, uh, it's called The Prophetic Imagination by Walter Brueggemann. And he writes about Moses, uh, Moses doing this in uh, bringing the Jewish people out of uh, Egypt, of uh, the Jewish people uh, being led in, in, in an, you might say, another kind of reality. And the reality is that there's a new, there's a new king in town. There's a new king who is real and uh, who has created a people and given them a particular way of life, an alternative way of life. And just what he says is that the ministry of Moses represents a radical break with the social reality of Pharaoh's Egypt. The newness and radical innovation of Moses in Israel in this period can hardly be overstated. The overriding experience of Exodus is decisive and not some uh, memory of uh, now only hinted at in the tradition. However, those antecedents are finally understood. The appearance of a new reality is unprecedented here in Israel. A new call of God and his assertion of an alternative way of life. A new community to match the vision that God gave Israel, the way of life. That's why, you know, for example, uh, we read uh, in... Um, uh, Leviticus chapter 18 says, don't be like the Canaanites and don't be like the Egyptians. Follow my way. And we have to ask ourselves uh, in our own world, in our own way, how much do we let the culture of our day infiltrate in? And uh, we really have to think about that. Uh, you know, uh, is our where are where do our passions lie? Do our passions lie in making the world a better place and alerting people to uh, uh, you know the realities of the world around us, or the alternative reality uh, of knowing God? I think a question we could ask ourselves is: Are we enjoying peace? And uh, you know, and I hope. Uh, indeed, that uh, I hope that we we are enjoying peace, you know, in uh, in the uh, Messiah. So when we come back here, we read they were enjoying peace. Uh, now, I uh, you, you know, it also says we'll come back to understanding how because all these things kind of work together. Everything it says uh, in this passage. So it says uh, here there. Uh, uh, they're enjoying peace. And then it says being built up. Enjoying peace and being built up. So their focus was evidently on knowing the Lord, being built up in the teaching of the Lord and, uh, you know, and uh, in, in the, uh, the disciplines of the faith and in prayer, uh, you know, in focusing on, on God, uh, having our eyes fixed on him. Learning uh, the, uh, uh, the, the new reality of uh, the coming of, of uh, the Lord uh, and, uh, and, and what that means. And we, 
we talk about that uh, a lot. Uh, and then it goes on to say uh, here, uh, and going on in the fear of the Lord, like traveling on in the fear of the Lord. It's kind of, in, it's kind of an interesting way of saying it, you know? And uh, traveling on, like living their lives in the fear of the Lord. What is, uh, you know, what is the fear of the Lord? You know, there's a lot of verses in the Bible uh, uh, that talk about the, uh, the fear of the Lord, uh, uh, about what that is. And I thought I would read a few of uh, them. I thought I'd read a few of them uh, here. Uh, in Psalm 19:9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. In Psalm 34, come you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. In Psalm 111:10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know, uh, it says, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. As it says in Proverbs 8.13, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. Those are the opposite of the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to walk with God. The fear of the Lord is to recognize that he is our authority. The fear of the Lord is to walk to a different drummer than this world. The fear of the Lord is to recognize that we answer to God. We answer to Yeshua. That is the fear of the Lord. And that is to live that way. The fear of the Lord is to know that we are accountable to him. The fear of the Lord is to know that he is returning and that we will have to answer to him for everything. That should dictate to us a lot of how we think uh, and uh, a lot of uh, how we make decisions and where our passions are. Will, we, he, will he say to us, well done, good and faithful servant? I mean, if he returned right now, with the, if he returned right now, like in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, would he say to you, would he say to me, would he say to us as a community, well done, good and faithful servant. I loved how you spent your time. I loved how you invested, uh, you know, in me uh, from morning till night and everything that you did. Those memes were unbelievable, right? I, you know, I, everything uh, that, that you made sure that you alerted everybody about, that was great. You know, will he say that? That is a question we really do need to entertain, you know, and, uh, and we need to ask ourselves, you know, uh, our, is our life really uh, uh, focused, on, uh, focused on him? And so uh, how could they have peace? How could they be built up? Uh, how is it that they were uh, able to um, uh, travel in the fear of the Lord? Uh, you know, uh, because uh, they were filled with the Ruach because of the comfort or the partnership or the encouragement uh, of, the, uh, of, of the Ruach. All of this, uh, you know, indeed goes, uh, goes together. We can see for sure they did not view suffering and, and the Messiah as something 
uh, as something uh, terrible, but rather as part of being like Yeshua, you know? And interestingly, when we read about the, uh, the uh, disciples themselves, I wanted to read a little something to you. Uh, and that is uh, from a, uh, a book called The Training of the Twelve. The Training of the Twelve. Did anybody ever hear of that book? Raise your hand if you ever heard of that book. It's by someone by the name of A.B. Bruce. A.B. Bruce. Okay. He lived about 100 years ago or more. Uh, very interesting man. The Training of the Twelve talks about the discipleship of the disciples and then how, you know, principles of discipleship from the apostles. And he talks about the 12, and he talks about how different they were. And uh, I thought this was, uh, this was great. He talks about the difference between Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, okay? So Matthew the tax collector, we would view him as a compromiser, compromising with the enemy, okay? We would view Simon the Zealot as kind of like a real right winger, a real right wing guy, but Matthew is kind of like a uh, kind of like a compromise. Without Yeshua, they would never have anything in common or even be able to be in the same room with each other. And so he says, uh, A.B. Bruce says in this book, The Training of the Twelve, it gives one a pleasant surprise to think of Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Publican men coming from so opposite quarters meeting together in close fellowship in the little band of 12. In the persons of these two disciples, extremes meet, the tax gatherer and the tax hater. The unpatriotic Jew who degraded himself by becoming a servant of the alien ruler and the Jewish patriot who chafed under the foreign yoke and sighed for emancipation. This union of opposites was not accidental, but was designed by Yeshua as a prophecy of the future. He wished the Twelve to be the congregation in miniature, and therefore he chose them so as to intimate that, as among them distinctions of publican and zealot were unknown, so in the congregation of the future there should be neither now, Jew nor Greek and so on. But isn't it interesting how many, many years ago, he says they had basically their politics was at opposite ends, but it was all subsumed under the kingship of the Messiah. And, uh, and they had a, a tremendous unity because nothing was more important than the unity of their fellowship. Nothing was more important than knowing the Lord Nothing was more important than their testimony. Nothing was more important than their unity. I hope you'll read the Darash. I was going to mention a little bit in it, but we're uh, pretty much out of time, and I don't have time for it. But I hope that we will, uh, you know, take these uh, words indeed to heart. And I'll just close with um, uh, Philippians chapter 2. At the beginning of the chapter, he says, If therefore there is any encouragement in Messiah... If there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Then he says, do nothing from selfishness 
or empty conceit with humility of mind let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. That only comes when we are experiencing the, uh, the consolation of love, the encouragement of the Messiah, the fellowship of the Spirit, affection and compassion amongst ourselves. You know, Yeshua, when he came, I, uh, yes, he turned the world upside down, but the world around him didn't change very much. Yet he made all the difference in the world. And so for us, may we be focused on making disciples. May we be focused on living in a way of life amongst ourselves and spilling over into, all, into the world around us. And so important for us to, uh, for, for us to get that and for us to have that kind of passion. In that way, we will increase during these days. These days are a great opportunity for us to increase. For us to increase. The more that we uh, take the initiative, and that's where real transformation comes from. May we be like those congregations where the world around them was swirling with all kinds of rebellion and problems and social upheaval, yet they were strong in who they were because they, know, they knew whose they were. And so may that encourage us and empower us and let us recognize that these are days of great opportunity. May we maximize the, uh, the opportunity that we have with everything that God has given us so that when he returns, he will say about these days, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord uh, God, uh, I just uh, pray, Lord, for all of us, for encouragement, uh, God, and that we might look and see the opportunities that we have to advance your work, and that in the swirling world around us, we would be at peace. We would not be sucked in. We would not be like everybody else. Lord, I pray the words that we speak would be different. The way we speak would be different. The content would be different. And it would all be about edification and building up. And it wouldn't be manufactured, but it'd be really who we are. Lord, and may we see transformation in our own lives May the beacon of light at Beth Messiah get brighter and brighter and brighter as the world around us gets darker and darker and darker. Lord, we thank you, God, for Yeshua. We thank you for this testimony. We thank you for every opportunity that you give us. And Lord, even in all of this, we don't understand all the whys, but we know how we can respond, Lord. We know indeed how we can respond. And God, may we indeed respond well, and may we respond in you. Lord, uh, we thank you, and we pray in Messiah's name. Amen.